Imagine a landing craft drifting through space, gliding over the bald lunar landscape, puffs of gas firing in short bursts from its maneuvering thrusters. Inside, the crew are delicately handling the craft's attitude, watching monitors and gauges with a weather eye so as to come down precisely on target, and not even a touch too fast. The craft begins to roll, angling its landing legs toward the surface of the moon, and its velocity bleeds down, the lunar gravity now reaching out to grasp at the little spacecraft and draw it into a firm embrace. A few more puffs from the thrusters evens out the lander's roll, now cocked at an angle over the surface as that slate-gray expanse looms nearer. A few more adjustments and the lander is nearly perpendicular to the ground. Gently, it settles down onto the moon, surrounded by a skirt of dust that hangs like a halo around the vessel. The hatch cracks open. There's the faintest outrushing of air as pressures equalize, and then a suited human disembarks, boot tread sinking into regolith underfoot. No face is visible through the shielded visor, but this person sets right to work, planting a flag in the lunar soil, held out on a horizontal bar which adjoins the staff. Not the stars and stripes, or even the hammer and sickle. This flag is dominated by a green field, with a tricolor square in the lower right corner. A golden eagle soars over the top of it. This crew does not hail from one of the world's superpowers, but rather from humble Zambia. Welcome to episode 31 of Frontier of Infinity, Afronauts, the Zambian space program. Last time, we discussed the tragic end of Sergei Pavlovich Kurlyov, who had served as the chief designer of the Soviet space program almost since its inception. He had been the mastermind behind the first artificial satellite, the first human in space, and the first spacewalk, but the abuses he had suffered at the hands of his mother country as a young man had seen a fairly simple surgery turn deadly when his heart failed on the operating table. His identity was finally made public, and for the first time, Sergei Kurlyov received much-deserved praise for his feats. But today, we're not going to follow up with what occurred next for the Soviet space program. Rather, we're going to take a look at a totally different one. One which was dreamed of being a third rival in the space race, but never quite made it that far. Today, we're discussing Edward Makuka Nikloso and his Zambian space program. To understand the advent of the Zambian space program, we'll first have to take a step back and examine the birth of Zambia as a country. The area which is now known as the Republic of Zambia is a landlocked region in south-central Africa bordering modern-day Tanzania, Malawi, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, Angola, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's a landscape dominated by rolling emerald forests, swift-flowing rivers, and undulating hill country, positively beautiful in its grandeur. 
Traditionally, it had been the dwelling place of a large number of Bantu-speaking tribes, but it was colonized by the British beginning in the late 19th century, when British companies began to seek out mineral rights in the region. Cecil Rhodes, who had led similar efforts in southern Africa, was also on the cutting edge of the attempts to expand British interests in Zambia. The British South Africa Company, led by Rhodes, eventually secured dominion over the region before it was consolidated into the Protectorate of Northern Rhodesia come 1911. In 1924, the British authorities did not renew the British South Africa Company's charter, and thus administration of Northern Rhodesia was handed off to the British Colonial Office. Northern Rhodesia was temporarily joined with Rhodesia, modern-day Zimbabwe, and Nyasaland, modern-day Malawi, to form the so-called Central African Federation. But as the 20th century stretched out, demands among the African populace for greater inclusion in the government grew in volume, and the fears of the Europeans that they would lose control over what they had taken increased. Elections in late 1962 resulted in an African majority in the legislature, which led to the secession of Northern Rhodesia from the Central African Federation and independence. The nation's name was changed to the Republic of Zambia, derived from the name of the Zambezi River, and a fresh chapter was opened in the region's history. But though Zambia had won its independence, their troubles were not at an end. It was a difficult road the young nation navigated during its early years. Piecing together a new government was a challenge, and despite its great wealth in minerals, most notably copper, Zambia was surrounded by European colonies and was largely dependent on foreigners to keep their economy functioning. It was against this tumultuous backdrop that the space race came to Africa. Enter Edward Makuka Nkloso. He was a grade school science teacher with quite a large dream, to beat both the Soviet Union and the United States to the moon. But this dream did not spring from nothing. Nicoloso led an interesting and storied life, going from soldier to teacher to revolutionary to hopeful space pioneer, each step along that journey making an impact on what would eventually manifest as the Zambian space program. Nkloso was born in the north of Zambia in 1919, when it was still called Northern Rhodesia. He was educated through the missionary system, meaning he was well-versed in language and theology, leading to a desire to become a priest. But when World War II rent the planet, Nkloso was drafted to serve in the British military as part of the Northern Rhodesian Regiment. He was deployed to Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia, and Burma modern-day Myanmar, where he served in the Signal Corps, responsible for communications. According to Nkloso's son, it was during the war that his father began to develop an interest in science. When he finally returned home from his service in the war, he was denied a permit to open a school of his own by the colonial authorities, which saw him drift about between established schools for a while, teaching a wide range of topics from math and science to Latin. But life for black veterans in the wake of World War II could be difficult. In a letter Nicoloso penned to a newspaper, he wrote that he and most of his comrades were, quote, completely forgotten, end quote. 
Eventually, while working as a teacher, Nicoloso engaged in an altercation with a British education official, apparently over whether or not he and his colleagues had a right to a lunch break, which reportedly resulted in Nicoloso overturning the table he sat at and proclaiming that the official was violating his and his colleagues' civil rights. This resulted in his prompt dismissal. From that point, Nicoloso was forced to find employment elsewhere with a pharmaceutical company, during which time he also became involved with the Andola Urban Advisory Council, an organization which advocated on the behalf of Africans in one of the country's most politically volatile areas. Nicoloso was involved in quite a lot of advocacy as part of the group, agitating for various public institutions which he believed would improve the lives of the people in the region. But Nicoloso also had a penchant for dramatics, bursting into the district commissioner's office at one point to resist the exhumation of African graves. This bold approach to his activism eventually got him arrested. When he was released, he was designated as a restricted person and returned to his home, where he became involved with the African National Congress, another anti-colonialist organization. By this point, Nicoloso had garnered quite a reputation as a revolutionary, and he had begun to accrue followers. In one instance, he was instrumental in organizing a civil disobedience campaign, which resulted in an arrest warrant being issued by the local chief. When the authorities attempted to arrest him, his supporters intervened and allowed him to escape, though he was eventually captured later on. Once again in prison, Nicoloso wrote a letter to Kenneth Conda, a fellow revolutionary whom he had known as a young man, telling him of the disturbance which had landed him in prison. Conda happened to be in London at the time, and he brought the event to the attention of the British authorities in their capital. Conda returned to northern Rhodesia and established the United National Independence Party, or UNIP, which Nicoloso was quick to join. As they continued to resist colonial rule, Nicoloso landed himself in prison a few more times. But it was apparently during this tumultuous period that Nicoloso began to dream about space. According to his son, he began to recruit members for a space program from among UNIP. He also claimed that some of the figures who would later go on to populate Nicoloso's program were involved in the dissemination of propaganda and even the construction and usage of explosives against their political foes. But it was not until after Zambia had won its independence that Nicoloso's program drew any attention to itself. This strange little project in the middle of Africa first came to the attention of the wider world in 1964, when Time magazine ran an article about Zambia's inaugural president, Nicoloso's ally, Kenneth David Conda, writing about his deep desire to keep his fledgling country neutral in the wider Cold War. But there was also a paragraph in this article which mentioned Nicoloso, reporting that he was the head of Zambia's National Academy of Science, Space Research, and Philosophy. The article mentioned that he was training a cadre of teenagers to serve as spacefarers by spinning them in an oil drum and teaching them to walk on their hands, as this apparently would be the only way that humans could walk on the moon. Interesting to say the least. This eccentric little blurb prompted a good deal of interest in Nicoloso, and whether or not this project of his was actually a serious scientific endeavor, or rather, some kind of prank. Maybe it was nothing more than a bid for attention, 
But regardless, the wider world had taken an interest in Nicoloso and his program. A number of different reporters from all over the world made the journey to Zambia to find and speak with Nicoloso, who was more than happy to share with the press. He could be found at an abandoned farm outside the capital city, the headquarters of his program. In one instance, he appeared before a TV camera in quite an interesting outfit, a military helmet, khaki uniform, and a cape, at which point he proceeded to explain to the interviewing reporter that he had plans to construct a rocket in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, and launch it to the moon, though the timetable was dependent on how much money he could raise and how quickly he could raise it. In the background, space cadets could be seen jumping up and down, clapping their hands over their heads, conceivably part of the training regimen Nicoloso had cooked up. The reporter asked Nicoloso if this would be the site of the launch, to which Nicoloso answered that it was, and then motioned behind himself toward an upright cylinder resting on the ground a few paces away, before declaring that it was his rocket. It can be difficult to know what to make of this footage right off. I was certainly at a loss when I first saw it. The idea that this little metal cylinder had any chance of taking shape as a viable rocket is absurd. But was Nicoloso aware of that? The reporter certainly didn't think so, turning to the camera after Nicoloso had left and declaring that, according to most of the Zambians he had interviewed, Nicoloso was a quote-unquote crackpot and that he also agreed. Further cameras captured footage of Nicoloso and his group loading teenaged Afronauts, as he called them, into an oil drum and rolling them down a hill, just as had been claimed by the Times article. Allegedly, this was to simulate a microgravity environment. Other times, he would have them swing on ropes from trees before the line was severed to induce freefall. But Nicoloso had a far-ranging plan for his space program. He had already selected the Afronaut who would be the first one to the moon. 16-year-old Matha Mwamba was to receive the honor. Even his dog Cyclops had a place in the program, planned to be his own version of Laika, who had shocked the world so thoroughly back in the 1950s. After making a successful moon landing, Nicoloso had dreams of reaching Mars next. During the mission, Matha would take along a number of cats, which Nicoloso said would serve a dual purpose— First, to serve as companions for Matha during the long voyage, but secondly as probes which could be dropped outside the spacecraft upon landing to ascertain whether or not Mars had a habitable surface. He would even attempt to establish a ministry on Mars to peacefully convert the primitive Martians he believed lived there, though he was adamant that his Afronauts would not force their religion upon the natives. In Nicoloso's eyes, the only thing holding him back from winning the space race for Zambia was money, and to rectify this issue, he sent requests for funding out all over the world, including both of the world's superpowers as well as the United Nations. He never got any favorable returns save for 10 rupees donated by a schoolboy in India, but still Nicoloso persevered claiming that many of his ideas were more advanced than anything the Soviet and American space programs had going. And for that reason, he wouldn't let anyone see his rocket plans, lest they leak out to his competitors. But alas, the dream alone was not enough to carry Zambia to the stars. Nicoloso's space program was a short-lived affair. It fell apart as its members drifted away. 
Nicoloso told a reporter for the Associated Press that he had lost two of his fellows to a drinking binge from which they had never returned, while Matha Mwamba became pregnant and thus dropped out of the program. He went on to explain that another of his Afronauts had left to join a music group. So Nicoloso's Afronauts never made it into space. But was that really the goal? Did any of Nicoloso's plans really have a chance of fruition? No, they absolutely didn't. But perhaps they weren't really supposed to. It's been suggested that the entire project may have been an elaborate work of satire, making a mockery of the enormously expensive space programs playing out in the U.S. and USSR. You're spending millions upon millions of dollars to design and build complex, dangerous rockets? Well, here's mine. It's a little metal cylinder. You're combing your populations for the most highly trained, well-qualified pilots so that they can be put through even more specialized training to operate a spacecraft? Here's my astronaut, a 16-year-old kid. Reporter Namwali Serpel writes in an article about Nicoloso and his program, quote, Zambian irony is very subtle, end quote, as well as, quote, Perhaps the question is not whether the Zambian space program was satirical, but why so few have imagined that it could be, end quote. She writes that Nicoloso wrote an op-ed about his program in 1964, which could quite easily be interpreted as a parody of British colonialism, going on about his plans to reach Mars and his strict orders that no native Martians were to be forcibly converted to Christianity. But there's also evidence to suggest that the Zambian space program may have been a cover for a different operation entirely. Nicoloso was still deeply involved with the UNIP party after independence, holding the position of special representative to the African Liberation Center, which sought to encourage additional revolutions in countries still occupied by foreign powers. Part of this position, it seemed, was the training of guerrilla fighters to support these independence movements. Nicoloso's son supports this conclusion, claiming that insurgents were trained in the Chunga Valley, where Nicoloso's space project was based. Perhaps the space program was just a cover for this more clandestine one. But as Conda's government solidified its power over Zambia, Nicoloso was pushed to the margins. He eventually pursued a law degree, but it did him little good, and he wound up working in security for an industrial development company until his death in 1989. So what are we to make of the Zambian space program? It's an unquestionably odd little footnote in the history of space exploration, but it's one that's gained a good deal of attention in recent years. To some, Nicoloso is seen as an inspiring figure, a man who didn't let anything stand in the way of his dream to reach the moon, even if he never really had any realistic chance of pulling it off. To others, he's a madman, but he's also become something of a symbol for Afrofuturism. A photographer named Christina de Middel composed a photo book filled with images which imagined what it may have looked like if Nicoloso had been successful. It depicts Afronauts wearing bulbous space helmets and traditional garb. No matter what the outcome may have been, and whether or not the whole operation was a cover for the training of guerrilla fighters or some kind of parody of the vastly expensive space programs unfolding in the U.S. and USSR, the legacy of Nicoloso's space program is an interesting one. Nicoloso is a fascinating figure in his own right, and in his homeland, he's remembered more for his work as a revolutionary than for his space program.
I first heard about Edward Makuka Nakloso from a friend of mine, and after doing some cursory reading about him, I knew I wanted to do an episode focused on him. I thought it would be a fairly straightforward affair, just an interesting little story about a strange little project in Zambia. But what I found when I started to seriously research this episode was something much deeper than that. I found a tale about a revolutionary for whom an attempted space program is one of the least important things in his life. To me, anyway, Nicoloso's goal of reaching the moon did appear to be a genuine one. Shortly before his death, Nicoloso gave an interview to a Zambian reporter and said, quote, I have not abandoned the project. I still have the vision of the future of man. I still feel man will freely move from one planet to another. End quote. I genuinely hope that that vision one day becomes reality. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.